Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. I'm here today with Astrid County. Astrid is a UX research consultant, uh, also the co-founder of Missing Link Studios. And um, she comes to us with an MA in anthropology from the University of Houston. So Astrid, thanks for joining. Would you start by sharing with everybody how you came into anthropology? Yeah, thanks, Matt, for having me. Um, I think I've been thinking a lot about my whole story of what my career has been about a lot this year. I think there's a lot of other people have too. So what I realized is that my journey into anthropology is actually kind of two pronged. So there's like the, I would call it the professional version. Uh, this is what I did in school and this is how I got to this. And then also my own personal journey and then they converged. So the professional version is I was a kid who grew up loving science and I thought I wanted to be a doctor, specifically a surgeon. I, I am a pre-planning kind of type A personality. So I had this all worked out before I even went to school. And then when I was going to undergrad, I was a forensic science major, partly just out of, I loved investigation and I loved like trying to take these little pieces and put things together and build a story. And I was pre-med. That was great because I got a chance to see everything that I don't like. And I think that sometimes we don't talk a lot about how important it is to see things that you don't want to do. So although I love forensic science, I did have an epiphany one day at a bone lab, like one in the morning, that I don't want to do this. I wanted to help people. I wanted to work with people. I didn't want to be in the bone lab by myself at one in the morning. It just felt very lonely. Also, I realized that any type of like closure I could bring would be after the fact. I really wanted to be a part of the process of something and not necessarily just kind of wrapping everything up at the end. So I had a quarter life crisis as to like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Because I thought I knew what I wanted. And I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out what my major would be. It was a whole like distilling down to basically two options of architecture or psychology. And I ended up picking psychology just partly because people kept telling me I would be really good at it. And also because since I knew I wanted to be a neurosurgeon and it was really hard for me to let go of this, I knew psychology was still associated with neuroscience and I could keep doing that. And by the time I figured out all this and eventually dropped pre-med so I could do a linguistics minor, I didn't have enough humanities courses because I've been doing all these uh, natural science courses. So I had to take an anthropology class. That was amazing. I didn't know that this discipline existed. I knew about pieces of it. So I knew about like what archaeology was. I knew that I loved like history. I understood that there was something where you could study culture. I didn't know that anthropology could do all those things. And I had a really great professor and he said, oh, I have this other class uh, that you could probably take if you're interested. It was called Science, Society, and Culture, which... I would say it's probably like a good way to sum up my whole career of what I do. 
I took that class and then I was just completely hooked because we did field work. And because I was a psychology major, I was also doing research there too. And I was a, a research assistant my senior year. And I kept having this nagging worry that, okay, we're sitting in this lab and I'm, and I'm seeing how people respond under certain conditions. But is this real? Because it's a lab environment. So it could, you know, in the real world, things could be different. And when we did field work in my anthropology course, I really love just you just go out into the world. Like you are trained to go out into the world and observe and understand what's happening. And I love that so much better. So I ended up deciding to do the master's for anthropology rather than psychology. Because at that point I knew if you're doing social sciences, it's really hard to go into the field with just your undergraduate degree. So I knew I was going to need to do a master's. I also knew that I was tired of being a broke college student, so I was going to work when I did this master's, which ended up being, I think for me, really pivotal, as I've talked to other anthropologists that I've met along the way. But at the time, I just thought it was really practical. Like, okay, I need a job. My, I have a younger sibling. My parents have to pay for that sibling to go to college. I just can't, you know, continue straight through academia. So I was thinking a lot more practically, well, I'll go do this master's in anthropology, I'll work. That'll also probably teach me about some things I don't want to do, which I had learned already. And then we'll see what happens after that. And then I would say like at that point of going and doing this master's, I started to see how my own personal journey had led me there, which was partly when I did go to undergrad and I started to notice what I didn't like. I also was really disenchanted, I think, with what happened to my love of science because it felt like it was kind of being stomped on. It was a lot of competition. I mean, anybody who's ever been pre-med, you know what it's like to like take your bio class with everybody and everybody's comparing their grades. And then you take your chemistry class, everybody's comparing. It's like not bio love science. Like I loved the ability to go out into the world and ask questions and gain new answers. That just didn't seem like how I was being taught. Like everything was just about preparing for the next thing. And even though, because I was super nerdy about medicine, I knew that this was just like step one of a long line of doing this very cycle over and over. It didn't feel the same in the actual doing of it. It felt really lonely. It felt very disconnected. And It made me think that, okay, maybe I'm not good at this. Like, I thought I was. My whole life I was good at this, and then I went to college, and then it just felt like all these little dreams of mine were getting stomped on. And it wasn't until I took an anthropology class that I realized, oh, I am good at this, just not that way. Because I can still learn about these things, and I can do really well when I do. Because I did really well in that class. That's what got my attention. It was not a class I was necessarily... Like, I never took anything for granted, but it wasn't a class I was necessarily expecting that I would just off the charts do well in because I had no exposure. And I started to see that it was something about the way I thought was in line with the way that anthropology kind of questions the world. And it started to also make me a little bit more aware of, of maybe my concerns about ways that psychology does things have validity. Like, maybe I'm not just the idiot student who doesn't know enough. So for those who don't know, psychology tends to pull their research subjects from 
there's an acronym for it called WEIRD, and I think it's like Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic, something like that. That was also concerning to me because I was thinking, we're talking about all behavior, but we're hyper-focused on a very specific subset. And my undergraduate experience was at a university that was also very, very white. So I was also thinking, could we not be coding like a cultural response in saying it's behavior, like human behavior? So then if someone acts differently, we're saying something is wrong with them because we didn't actually uh, factor in that this variable exists. So it started to give me a little bit more confidence that maybe the questions I had were not just mine. Like they were real questions. They should be investigated. There was more there. So that's kind of how I got there. Yeah, very cool. Nice story. Um, thanks for sharing. Obviously, there's you know there's um, highlights or, or high moments and low moments in that story, which is the truth of everybody's story. Um, I'm glad you included all of that because sometimes, you know, we have a tendency in the rearview mirror to gloss over everything and make it seem like it was sort of a nice linear straight line, yeah. which is usually not the case. Um, also, think you know, learning what you don't want to do is really important, and, and agree with you that. You know, for those who have maybe the opportunity to work while studying, it, it is a unique opportunity mm-hmm. to do that, but also to bring in experiences into the classroom, which really enrich the whole class for everybody, yeah. um, which is also beneficial, I think. But so, you know, obviously you've never lost the science interest and that contributes to what you do today. Um, obviously, those are, you know, good, valuable skills. But you're just sort of, you know, in a different space, asking different questions and, and applying it maybe a little different. Um, but that interest is still there. However, you know, it's interesting in the how your whole path unfolded because it really doesn't stop there either. Um, you know, I know we'll get in. I'm sure we'll get into it here at some point. But I know you've picked up an interest in, you know, in software engineering, and mm-hmm. I think a little bit of an interest in data science. And of course, now you're doing UX. So, you also, besides science, it seems like have an interest in tech. Yeah. And so, you know, where did that come from, and at what point did that really bubble up? Oh, right, right after. So you're right on point. So what happened is that I was working. That's where my tech interest came in. I didn't know that I loved technology. I mean, I was. I grew up, I played video games. I did care. Like I was the person in my house who could fix the radio or my television or something, but I didn't think anything of that. It's not like I grew up in a house full of engineers or anything where I could see like a path for, oh, I can do this well. I can do this other thing. I didn't program or anything like that as a kid. But when I was working, I got introduced to databases, which shocked me that I didn't learn this undergrad because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I could put all my information in this machine and then I can just run a query. Why why didn't anyone tell me this? Why am I doing everything on a spreadsheet and, you know, hurting my eyes trying to make sure I'm building the right charts? Why didn't you just tell me I could do this in a database? So it was, it was a good opportunity for me to kind of just like slowly come into it. I didn't come into technology with an intention. It was more so just, this will help me do my job better. And I just really liked having the ability to manipulate things on my own and not need to have to ask somebody else to help me understand what was happening. So, so let me tell you a little bit about what I was doing because that might make it make more sense. Uh, after college, I worked at what is essentially a geo data science company. So I live in Houston. It's the energy capital of the world. There's lots of energy companies here, but there's also lots of what we would call service companies, which are companies that work 
with those energy companies to make what they do easier. That is where I worked. And I was trying to find like the most anthropological job I could find there because I knew I was going to do a master's in anthropology. So my job was to be the subcontractor coordinator because we had subcontractors in India that we, they did part of uh, our data process and then we brought that product in and then we finished it. So I felt like, okay, I'll get a chance to have some cross-cultural communication and, you know, I'll be able to kind of bridge this gap a little better. But what I really learned in that position was how to handle data and how to start thinking about business decisions in ways that were very different than what I had learned. Like I, I realized that in the business world, people don't always know what your degrees are for because I think that there was not an understanding that social sciences teach statistics, at least descriptive statistics. So when I was being tasked to do things, sometimes I was being asked to use the wrong statistic to display something which is extremely uncomfortable for me. And it was one of the first ways I had to start learning, how do you get things done? Because it's not like academia where you it, there's a right. There's maybe something right, but there's also what's going to happen. And those are often not the same thing. So I started to learn a little bit about the way that decisions are made and that that company, those decisions were made, what we would call now like data-driven decisions. So because I did have access to all this information coming in from our subcontractors, it got me really interested in better understanding what they were doing because it would affect our internal operations, uh, being able to display that in some way that helped my manager or my, my boss's boss make a decision, uh, being able to advocate for what I believed was supposed to happen because I could show like, well, this is what happened before and then you didn't do this. Now I think we should do this. And it kind of gave me some, like, I guess, soft skills was maybe what they call it. But I think more like negotiating skills of how to negotiate up because I was one of the lowest people on the totem pole. But because I was, I was also the closest to the actual product itself. And I could see how understanding how to use some of these things in a, in a really strategic way could make a big difference in you know my work experience, but also other people who were my coworkers and who maybe would have undue pressure because there was an assumption about what they would have and it was actually really off because we were using the wrong statistic to, to decide what that would look like. And all this went into like operational planning. And then when that was wrong, people had to work extra, they had to work harder or, or something like that. So it, it got me really interested in just understanding how databases work, understanding what's happening behind like an access database, which is what I started with, learning SQL. I made friends with IT people at my job who were just like excited that somebody cared. And they were like, hey, if you like this, you should try this. And so it was like a slow process of gaining this knowledge over time while I was working. And so how much of that did you gain while you were in your graduate program? And did you get to use any of those skills like during your thesis? Yeah, actually I did. So because I started that job the next year, I was going to graduate school part-time and I started to see, I treated my graduate school education, I think more so like how some people talk about their MBAs or what I was thinking at the time was how a lot of folks treat their masters of public health where they're working, but this is also 
like additional information. They try to use it all together. And that way, when they graduate, it's not like they're starting in a career. They're actually enhancing their career. So I remember having a project where I was supposed to, it was in my statistics course for graduate school, where I was supposed to do something with cell phone usage and use SPSS which I hated because it felt like SPSS was just extremely complex for no good reason. I didn't understand why we used it. And I remember having a really hard time trying to get the T-test I wanted. And, and, and this is, I'm a person who actually likes statistics. So it was my one saving grace when I got to high school with math because I loved math growing up. And then it started to fade a little bit like what happened with science, but statistics I kept. And I remember trying to do it all in SPSS. I couldn't do it all in SPSS, but I could do it in Excel. So my, my professor was nice enough to let me turn in some of that in Excel because she was saying, okay, if you can do it, I'm more interested in that than you having to use SPSS to do it. And that allowed me to have a little bit of crossover, but also I think it also went the other way around where for me, my days were like I was going to work and then I would leave my job and I would start my graduate class at 5.30. It would be 5.30 to 8.30. So what we were discussing in class or the books we were reading or the work we were doing would definitely feed into work. And it was kind of this cross-pollination happening all the time. So by the time I finished my master's program, I had, I think at that point, I had progressed to a point where I was leading uh, a data a data analysis team. And a lot of my ideas around presentation of information, how we thought about decision-making, especially in large organizations, had definitely been affected by school because I thought a lot about what organizational culture meant and what it meant to persuade and, and have people kind of buy in as things that were rooted in anthropological concepts that I was learning. And I really treated my workspace as like an ethnographic field site for me because it was something I was doing all the time. I didn't want to pretend like these are separate spaces. And because I was learning like certain tools at work, it made some aspects of school easier for me. Like it just wasn't as much of a sludge to get some tedious stuff done I was doing it all the time anyway. I got a chance to do some other projects at the time when I was going to graduate school is shortly after Hurricane Katrina happened, and we had a lot of refugees in Houston for that. And at my university, which is University of Houston, they had a Surviving Katrina and Rita project that I was a part of. So I got to, I didn't get to do the interviews themselves, but I transcribed those interviews. That process, just learning like how to listen, how to actively listen, how to write down what people were saying, how to pull out what was important, how to start to pattern match, that really was helpful for me as a manager. Because what I learned is that a lot of times people are saying one thing, they're really upset about something else, but they're trying to use the coded language that they believe will get heard because no one is really listening to them or they feel as though they're not being appreciated enough. And it helped me come up with ways that I could treat my team members or even like at, at some point, I think it was shortly after I finished my master's, I had like a supporting leadership team underneath me who also had their own people. We could come up with programs that would try to incorporate these voices, help give them opportunity to be heard in different ways than what was traditional inside of this corporate structure. 
And a lot of that came from just learning how to use these tools, but having real world applications that I immediately applied them to. So it became like part of how I work. And so it sounds like maybe in the beginning, you know, it was very quant focused, but if I'm correct, like more opportunity for qualitative later in the workspace. Yeah. I think in the workspace, a lot of times the qualitative stuff is, is not really called qualitative. It's just like, you're good at with people or you're good at managing or something like that. But really that's Mm -hmm. qualitative techniques. And so since you were getting to touch a little bit of, you know, both quant and qual, did this job in any way kind of contribute to like a, like a portfolio like project that you've then sort of used post then, you know, or at least to, to move on, you know, were you, you know, I know you said that you were trying to like, you know, there were some overlaps. So were you really thinking, I guess, at that time that like, if I structure this the right way, I can come out with, you know, a portfolio of work. I was thinking about how to, how to be able to leave my industry. I didn't want to feel pigeonholed by a specific industry because that's where my experience was. I didn't get a chance to have a portfolio because of the fact that I worked with a company where you can just like use your projects or, or any of it was really hard to code the information because it's mostly operational stuff. But what I did get a chance to do was have a few opportunities to change my role in the company. And I did spend some time trying to understand like what is it that I can do here that would allow me to work across other industries, work anywhere I wanted. I was still thinking at that point that I would finish my master's and then just like go be a medical anthropologist because that's what I had originally planned to do. So what I ended up choosing was going down this analyst path. It was, I did a little bit of research to try to understand what an analyst really was, which I think it's one of those job titles that it depends on where you work, what it, what you do, but there are a few overlapping things. So I knew that I liked the ability to have some effect on the outcome. I really didn't want to be in a place where it was too specific, where I could only really talk that talk with that particular manager or that particular team. I wanted to have like a more generalized skill that could help be persuasive. So I knew I wanted something like that. I knew I cared about strategy. Um, I knew that I wanted to be able to have something that I felt was like a employable skill. So like one thing we didn't get to talk about is after I did graduate, it took some time to get a job. And I was not happy about this because I thought that, okay, you told me you needed a college degree. I got my college degree. Now you tell me you want experience, but I don't have that because I was getting a college degree. So I didn't want to have that happen again, where it was like, well, you don't have the right skills. I wanted something that felt employable and I could see that no matter what industry I was interested in, there was always a version of this job where it was a person who they had to basically work at all the stuff that was gathered, probably in a spreadsheet, maybe across reports, and help some sort of leader make a choice. So I decided, okay, if that's, if that's what that is, then I can be an analyst because I can definitely see how I can take all the stuff I'm learning as an anthropologist apply it to this analyst role, make myself unique somehow. I wasn't quite sure what that was going to look like yet, but I just knew that I wanted the chance to do that. And that actually worked because after I graduated, maybe about a year afterwards, I started getting headhunted by other companies, which was really cool. I had not experienced that before where somebody's like, we want you. So that was great. And it was 
because I had this analyst background, I ended up going to a big company, it's a gas company. And I had this role where I was there training data analysts. And really what it was about was the previous year, they had had an accident and they had lost, I think, 11 or 12 employees. They had died. They were out on a rig and they died because there was safety protocols that weren't being adhered to. And it was a challenge to make sure that everyone was getting the right training at the right time because this company was quite old. It's about 100 years old. It also had done a big merger with another company. And so they controlled all the gas pipeline, most of it in the in North America. But the, because you're talking about two different company cultures, and you're also talking about a company that built up a process way before computing, their means of understanding who got the right training was almost word of mouth. And that's, we're talking about a company that had like, at the time, 5,000 employees. So that's not a good way to know. And they wanted someone to make sure that that happened. And that was part of my my role was to have some sort of way to ensure that everybody got the training they needed. I was excited about the role because it meant that I had to liaise with all the different VPs and make sure that they knew that everyone in their, like their down, their down teams were actually trained. And that was not easy because it's, Lots and lots of training, depending on your position, how much more training you get. Um, but it was definitely the sort of thing I was wanting to do, something where I had the opportunity to have an effect on the outcome. Even though it was an analyst role, it was like not really about being the analyst. It was more so about how do we help this company not lose its employees? How do we make sure that people feel safe going to work? Like These are real humanistic questions to me and not like just data-driven questions. And it gave me a chance to better understand how, when you are good at being persuasive, how much of an impact you can make. So it was, it did, it was the right path for me. It took me a little bit of time to figure out what that role would look like. And I think that's just because of like what my options were versus what I was, I knew I wanted to do, but I definitely think it helped. And I would advise other people, if you are working someplace and you don't like, your particular industry, your job or something, you want something new, uh, try to build that bridge from where you are to where you want to be rather than just try to make a huge leap. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. And then you get kicked a little bit further back than where you started. And I didn't want to do that. And now great advice. Um, you know, but to just briefly go back, I'm curious to know, you know, building a bridge from one of the next is, is good, but also getting headhunted is, is obviously an interesting mm-hmm. position to be in. And um, what were you doing to increase your visibility that people, that headhunters, you know, found you? You know, where were they reaching out and any thoughts there on what other, you know, what other practitioners should be doing if they want to maybe find themselves in a similar situation? Oh, yeah. So I did a few things. I think one big thing is LinkedIn. I think that's, it's still surprising to me how many people don't believe that that's actually going to be a really good way to get a job, but it is. Uh, a lot of companies are looking for people on LinkedIn. So I did have a LinkedIn account, but it's not just having it. I also really curated it. And it took me several iterations to try to get that right. And by that, what I mean is I would spend time going on LinkedIn to find people who had jobs that looked interesting to me and who seem to have a lot of 
clout on the platform or they seem like they had a lot of people connected to them because that's part of if you understand a little bit about the algorithms and how they work it's usually con- like if you have a lot of connections and people repost what you write then your post will show up more that tends to be a general rule so i, I kind of use those two things like i would look up a case who's some sort of analyst it didn't matter if they were in my city in my field or whatever and then how do they talk about themselves it, it also gave me a little bit of insight into how recruiters think. So I realized you have to be really explicit about what you do because they're not going to take the intuitive leaps that you might think they would. And you have to just straight say, like, this is what I do and this is why I'm good at it. So I started to recode my jobs that I'd had at the company that I had been working at for much more generic terms. So that another person could look at it and say, oh, I know what that means. And that seems like a small thing, but it's really a huge thing. And I didn't realize it until after I did it and started to get more requests and people wanting to connect. And then I think similar to that, I also spend time on my resume. So I think LinkedIn and your resume should actually be very different. The resume has to be super curated to what it is that you want for yourself. And I believe that at this point in time, I put my resume on my LinkedIn. So even though I had a LinkedIn kind of page that was meant to draw people in and and have them look at me, when they downloaded my resume, I wanted them to see like, I look exactly like what you need for this next role. So I decided to kind of build it backwards in that regard. So thinking about, I want a role where I do this. And at that point, I knew I wanted a role where I was some sort of analyst, where I was working at a higher level, like not a small group, maybe a whole department or something like that. So I retold the story of my employment history to make it look like it's very obvious that the next step should be that. And I think those two things really helped. And I think that's something that we all know that that storytelling is really important. But I also had learned just from my time in business that you have to be really good at storytelling on documents or on websites where you may never actually meet the person who is reading that story because that is how you find ways into the room that you want to be in so you can articulate it yourself because I think it's always better when you can have a conversation but to get someone's time you have to look like a person they really want to talk to and it took me a few iterations of working on both of those things to get me there. Yeah, so let's let's maybe use that as a jumping off point. So going forward, um, and maybe fill in any gaps if I'm if I am missing something. But you know, eventually you're starting to do more consulting. You get involved with Adam Gamwell, who mm-hmm. was literally the last guest, and so the, you two will be back to back, which is <laughs> kind of ironic. Um, but so you co-found Missing Link Studios, which is sort of grounded in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you always have an interest in storytelling? You know, did you realize just through the process that that was important? And like, what did you do to develop those skills? Oh yeah. Aside from iterating, I always had an interest did not realize how important it was for a long time so like for me um i loved the big epic stories i was that person who watched the ten commandments over and over because i just not so much because it was a bible story but more so because i just loved the big the bigness of it and all the stuff that was happening and when i was in college i took a classics course which i didn't know was a thing either i didn't know that like you could study this for a living that's kind of cool Ellie read the Elite and the Odyssey and a few other things and really 
did some higher level critique. So I always knew I loved, like, when I was even in high school, I remember reading Paradise Lost. Like, I love these huge, what I think now are sort of almost like cosmology, like stories. When I did my master's, and then I took a course called African Myth and Cosmology, that kind of brought it home to me because it was one of those classes where as I was taking, I was like, I don't know why I have to take this. I don't know if this is really about medical anthropology. <laughs> and as I was going through it, I started to understand, okay, what happens is that we all tell ourselves stories about everything that we do. And we make our own behaviors and decisions make sense to us because of the stories we tell. But they're not just our own individualized stories. They tend to be stories that connect to these larger stories associated with our social circle, with certain cultural things, etc. Learning about these huge stories meant that I could better understand how people might see something, how they may behave in certain situations. It started to click to me that storytelling really matters. And this is at the same time that I'm working and I'm seeing how facts don't always push through in a conversation. So I had the experience of like being in meetings, saying the truth about something like this is what's happening. And then watching as the meeting continues, another person who maybe has a particular agenda start to advocate for what they want, regardless of whether or not it makes sense. And by the time the meeting is over, they're getting something they want. And it's partly because of how good they are at making people feel invested in what they want to do. And so kind of having these little experiences started to put together for me, okay, if you want to do something, make something, have some sort of impact, you definitely have to make sure the story makes sense. Is not in not makes sense in the sense like it's logical to everybody, but it has a, a flow. People can follow it. Because I realize someone will follow you into the dark woods if they think that you know what comes next. But they won't necessarily take something that is very well known and maybe objectively true and and run with that because they don't really have a way to use it. So you gotta give them some way to use that. So the storytelling was like a slow understanding, but it definitely has a huge effect. And I think now I would say it's very much responsible for all the other things I've done in my career because I always reassess and decide what is it that I'm trying to do be and how can I talk about that in a way that helps other people get it? Because if you just lay out all these different facts, they're not gonna they're not gonna get it at all. Yeah, sure. Now so with that in mind I'd like to, I guess I have like a two-part question that we can tack, you know, tack one after the other. One curious to know, like, you know, given that you're in the tech sector, at what point did you become aware of UX and how did that happen? And then now that you're consulting, you know, I know that you have, you know, your particular interest in the way you portray, you know, your story, mm-hmm. your, right, of, of what you do in UX. And so could you, you know, tell us a little story about how you came into that and, and how you're sort of framing that out? Yeah. Okay. So for your first part about how did I learn about UX, I believe I learned about it during graduate school, although I don't think I learned about it from my program. I think I learned about it from other students. And so this, the University of Houston, they have a terminal master's program and it's an applied program. But I think also it's a unique institution because a lot of people who go to the University of Houston 
they commute to school, even when they're undergraduate. It's also a large campus, like 50,000 students. So a lot of people in my program were people like me who were working during the day, doing other things. So they had their own reasons for coming back and doing this master's. There were some folks who went straight through school and they were doing their master's full time. So though those people were not necessarily as aware of all the ways in which they were going to use their, their this, this particular role, this particular degree for a role. But I think that there were some people because we would just talk after class about like what we wanted to do, why we were there and what we were hoping to do. And there were some people who mentioned that there's this UX thing that you could do. I want to say one of my classmates talked about how she could go to San Francisco and go work there, but she wanted to stay in Texas because there were some specific things she wanted to do here that had to do with that. And I didn't really know what that was. So I looked it up and I think also I used LinkedIn for this. I tried to find LinkedIn groups that were about user experience and understand what that meant because I kind of knew, like it made sense to me. We talk about all these topics. I didn't understand how that works in a job. And I hadn't seen a role like that at a company that I was at. So I wasn't sure what that was. I knew we had, we had project managers, product managers. We didn't have UX anything. And I figured maybe this is because I work in a business-to-business company, not a business-to-consumer company, which I would say at that point in time, at least here in Houston, I think a lot of the UX roles were at companies that were business-to-consumer. That has changed now, and now there's UX roles everywhere. Even at the company I used to work at, now they have UX roles. So it was like a slow coming to understand what it was. And I remember thinking, oh, I might want to do this. But I hesitated partly because of what I had learned about how you get stuff done. I, I kind of knew at this point, if if I have a role like this, or it may not go by this name, but it may have something similar, it may be so new to the organization that they don't know what to do with me. And I don't want to be left out of decisions. So I was thinking, I kind of put it in my back pocket. and was like, I'll, I'll kind of come back to this and see what this looks like uh, as I continue a little bit further and develop my own I guess, brands, because at that point, I think I had learned that you should have a personal brand. I was like, oh God, I don't have time for a personal brand. But I, I kind of had to figure that part out. And that leads to your second part of your question, which is what I, what I realized is after I went to this other company, I was working in as a training data analyst. That was when I started to get really dogmatic about technology because I was told, oh, you can't have your own database because you're not a developer. So you have to go get a software engineer to build one for you. And I was like, I don't need that. I just, I know how to make it. So let me do it. But they wouldn't let me. Um, that made me really annoyed. And I remember going and making friends with people on the, the software development team. And they were like, oh, well, if you know how to do it, then I'll just give you permissions. But then that was, it was a very bureaucratic process to get all that done. And it felt like it was hardening my ability to just be innovative because I had all these ideas. I wanted to do them. It was really hard to do them. But at the same time at that company, it was also the first time I'd worked on a team of all social scientists. So there were some people on that team who did have UX in their background and they had done different sorts of things. But some of those people had done it in relation to um, instructional design, which was new to me at that point. So I learned some from them about this, but I also was like, 
this is interesting, but I'm really pissed off that I can't innovate. So I left that company and I went to a programming boot camp because I wanted to never be in a position again to not be able to build what I wanted. And that has partly to do with the fact that up to that point, I had only learned how to program in Microsoft's products. And because it's a very corporate product, all the pieces of it are broken apart. So you don't have access to the servers and stuff unless you have certain permissions. When I went to the programming bootcamp, I learned how to program in open source tools. So things that I could use on my own for free, didn't have to have the full corporate setup. And that gave me a little bit more autonomy to start thinking more innovatively about what I was about. Because I knew that was a thing that I had to figure out. And it gave me a little bit of, that's what I did start doing some freelancing and tried out a bunch of things. I figured out that what I cared about was the ability to use technology for some sort of social impact. And there's definitely a huge UX component there. And especially when you get into the programming space, there are a lot of people who are front-end developers, plus they also do UX research and design. I think that's a lot, but that's, that's also like a role. And I thought about doing that. I didn't pick that way because I knew that when it came to the programming, which is also just in general, my personality, I really loved understanding the systems and how they worked. And that tends to not be on the front end side. So I was like, okay, I don't know how to do this yet. So then I continued learning some systems development stuff. I was actually working as a DevOps engineer, which was amazing and terrifying because it's like, if you, it's cool because you kind of are like the wizard behind the the curtain that nobody sees but it's also terrifying because if you do something wrong like the whole thing comes crashing down which is my daily fear um and i was trying to figure out like how do i bring ux into this it was an interesting experience because i for the first time had real compassion and empathy for our software teams because i didn't realize how much is happening at that level like not the application level but that operational level where you're just trying to build the system to even move all the code through, I realized that I did have something to offer because I was doing a lot of like blogging at the time on the team. So I was writing a blog every week to talk about our work so that other people who were on other software development teams and other parts of the company could understand what we did. So I knew it was very misunderstood. This is a ripe area for UX to operate. Uh, but I still hadn't quite figured out how to make all that work. So I left and I was doing work at a nonprofit where I was the director for Tech for Justice. And that was about how do we use technology to advance people's own experience of the justice system, but more specifically to advance how they deal with certain types of problems that normally you need a legal aid lawyer to help with. That helped with getting me a little bit closer to figuring out the UX piece because I wasn't working in a huge corporation. We were doing MVPs. And I got a chance to use what I would say like UX tools. So I was doing um, card sorting and I was helping like basically take all these rough pieces and let's figure out what this is really about. Who are you making this for? It was sort of like a hybrid role between being like a UX researcher, product manager to try to get things to an end. And I and I started doing similar things in freelance roles where I was kind of like a product manager. So I was getting closer and starting to have a better understanding of, okay, how do I want to use this? So I always had it in my back pocket, but I was really, I guess, 
concerned, very wary of just rolling out the UX carpet and not really understanding what I myself wanted to do with it. I didn't want to be kind of a puppet of another system. I wanted to make sure that I was really being impactful in the ways that mattered to me. So the interesting thing um, about the, the very end of what you just said is that UX research isn't always impactful in that sometimes you are throwing that research over the wall to, you know, product. Yeah. And, or, or you know, it depends on the organization, however it's structured. But probably more often than not, somebody else makes the final call of what gets in and, you know, what ships in the product and what doesn't. So how do you, you know, now that you've sort of more firmly moved into the UX research space, how are you negotiating that or how do you feel about it? Well, right now I'm lucky because I'm a UX team of one. So I actually have a lot of control over what happens with it. What I'm trying to do is basically use some of the things I learned along the way of understanding how to relate to different people on the company, uh, really trying to listen and making sure that I hear what they're saying, I respect what they're saying in the hopes that they will reciprocate with me as well. It's interesting right now because the main company I'm working with is a company called Holochain. They're an open source platform and that's for a decentralized web. So that's a, an internet where you don't need a big tech company like a Google or Microsoft to have servers you can actually have other people who are involved in this decentralized web serve up your information for you. And it's and that's why they call it peer-to-peer, which I think is really, really interesting, a great way to kind of think about the internet 3.0. But in that environment, I'm kind of like an insider-outsider. Like it's the most anthropological, I think, that I've ever had to be in, like directly in a role because... I don't work for the organization as a full-time employee. I do want to have an outside perspective so I can give them this perspective that they know they're missing. Um, They want to have somebody kind of shine lights in places that they normally don't see. So there is already a relationship there where that's expected. That's part of the reason why I'm there. Uh, But also I've learned a little bit just from having you know, done different things in different tech companies, especially in the community space around what could happen with results that I come up with. So I just am at this place where I'm doing all the analysis for research I've been doing for the last few months. And part of what I'm doing is writing up a report, which is really tricky because you want to write something that everybody can read, they understand, has enough breaks with visuals so it doesn't feel overwhelming. Uh, But I'm also going to include like here's what I'm going to call our like next experiment, like things we could be doing because we learned this information. And I think that that, at least so far, has been a good way for us to take information and do something with it, not just hand it over, is to give, here's an experiment we could try, like not necessarily let's implement this entire plan, because that can be overwhelming too, but let's try something. Let's see if we can get more information around it. Uh, we also had another contractor who was a uh, data analyst and she came up with all these key performance indicators and created a dashboard that's continuously being updated. So part of what I am going to do is tie some of the research questions I have to outcomes I can see there. So I think trying to find ways to integrate into their existing system is really important. It's 
important to change and make changes, but uh, I think like we all know, it's really hard to make a drastic change. It's a lot easier to make a little change. And when you start to see there's some payoff, it makes it more exciting to continue. So some of those little things that I learned just from doing other roles are things I'm trying to integrate here. So that way, as the research I'm doing continues to give insight, it's something that can actually be acted upon, which is super important to me. And I think about that a lot before I even start, like, what can I do that can be actionable? So that way, when I'm giving something over, it's not just pieces of information. It's actually like, here's what we can do. I can help. So let's talk about if you want to start this. Yeah, you're not just making it more complex for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, yeah, so I guess a few last things maybe to, to kind of wrap up. One thing I'm hearing from you is, you know, related to that dashboard, if you can demonstrate, you know, do well, demonstrating value. And in the UX space, that's, I think, a little easier than maybe some areas we apply anthropology yeah. because we often do tie it out to metrics centered around some kind of like use concept mm-hmm. um but do you have any thoughts on you know what practitioners should be doing or thinking about to demonstrate their value oh yeah lots of thoughts so i think one thing that's helpful is to not be afraid to be outside of your area and i think there's nothing wrong with being especially if you love research and you want to be an awesome researcher it's a, it's a tough job and it does require a lot of focus but I think that it's important to understand who you're working with and their own perspectives. So one of the things that I believe helped me is because I was always trying to find my path of like, what kind of anthropologist am I? Like, what does anthropology mean for me? I wasn't spending a lot of time explaining it to other people, which was actually what I was told to do. Like, you need to tell them what anthropology is. And you can tell them like how you can be helpful to them. I decided that didn't really work very well, and especially fast-paced business environments, I don't want to hear about your particular story. Uh, But what did work really well is for me to be an anthropologist in that environment and learn about what was working, how things were working, what mattered, who really had power, those sorts of things. By doing that and learning something about what everybody else was doing, it made it a lot easier for me to be able to be impactful because I actually knew where... I could make an impact. I understood that if I wanted to like get something pushed through, there were certain people that were stakeholders that I might need to meet with, even if they're not officially on the team. I understood that there were certain things that maybe would make my boss more excited and I could lead with that, like those sorts of skills. I think sometimes we forget that it's important to use your anthropology skills for the betterment of whatever it is that you're trying to do. And not just so that you can go be an anthropologist. I also think it's really helpful to consider where you're trying to go with your particular role. So even if you want to stay only in research, there's so many different ways that you can be what I think of as a unique contributor. Uh, I think that really helps to consider your particular path, your particular skills, your particular outlook, and how that can be unique wherever you are and to, and to find like where that, that Venn diagram loops over because it means that what will happen is that you will get invited because you're you, not necessarily because research needs to be there. 
And although that's not necessarily the way you would help things work, that's just the truth. I, that's one of those things I learned is that there's a lot of, I guess, like people like working with certain people, but they need to know you. And if you understand what you do well, what you enjoy a lot, what you're passionate about, and where that can be helpful in whatever company you work at, then there's some opportunity for you to become the person who gets invited into the room, even when you don't normally, you normally wouldn't be there. I think it's also important to take those opportunities and do something with them. So sometimes, um, like I, I was very shy in the beginning of my career in meetings, especially with like boss bosses, you know, people who really wore real suits and seemed to like command the room. I didn't know what to say. So I would spend a lot of time in meetings very quiet, but I also learned that it doesn't help you to not say anything because then people question if you should even be there. So what I started to do was say, I will, I will have a list of three points and I will at least say one of them before we leave. And that helps because a lot of times other people's experience of the meeting may include your points and they may come ask you a question. And, and I learned that it was a lot of these sort of little conversations, little actions that made a bigger difference and what I was kind of given access to, what I was allowed to do, um, more so than even my particular role. Because sometimes it is about like getting the right title so you can have certain access. But I find that most of the time, it's really about being a person people think should be there. Even if they don't, even if it's just because they want to hear what you have to say and not necessarily because you're going to do something specific. So I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, what value do, do you bring regardless of your, your role or title? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you talked about sort of you know, bringing your unique value, and part of that for you is certainly your tech background and, you know, just understanding of technology and how things work together. Now, I appreciate not everybody may wish to take, you know, any kind of software development classes. Mm -hmm. But tech skills, especially for people who are interested in UX, is, you know, having a basic understanding of information systems is really important. And I can say that my tech background helps me do my work oftentimes much quicker. So is there anything that you would suggest people, you know, upskill on oh, yeah. uh, without, you know, necessarily going full bore into yeah. programming? Yeah, um, I think especially if you're, if you're wanting to work in UX and tech, I think you need to start learning about what the tech industry is. So learning that there are certain kinds of companies and they do certain sorts of things, understanding, and if, and if that's a company you want to work at, then understanding a little bit about their business and learning stuff that's related to it. So by that, what I mean is like, if you want to go work at Facebook, they're a platform company. They're not really a social media company. They're a platform company. So what is the difference between a social media and a platform? Like, what's the difference between an app and a platform? You should understand that. I think it's always, I always say it's worth learning something in the programming world. Like, you don't have to go be a programmer. But one of the first things I learned was SQL, which is the database language. It's how you write queries. And it's not a super complex language where you're going to have to spend, you know, years and years learning it. But it's worthwhile if what you're going to be doing is working with maybe data scientists, because what you want to be able to do is have some sort of commonality beyond just talking in the abstract. Programming is very abstract. So it's already going to be challenging to understand 
maybe what certain algorithms are doing or what your machine learning is doing. In some cases, even the companies don't know everything that they, those things are doing. But if you can, you know, look at someone's code and have a general idea of what's happening, like, oh, I see that you pulled something from this table. Is this where we keep all of our customer IDs? Does that mean that if I wanted to understand something about which user is doing certain things, would that be in this table? If you can have that conversation, it it allows you to build a deeper rapport, but it also allows you to work way, like give you a chance to be more innovative. So I think it's worthwhile to learn something. You don't have to like go really deep. I feel like a lot of people are scared of programming, but they haven't really looked at it. And I, it's just a language like any other language. It's something that you have to get used to the syntax. You have to get used to what it does. You don't have to always execute everything all by yourself, but it's worth just having, like if you can stand over the shoulder and kind of know what's happening, that's definitely a huge benefit. And that's going to be different for like a company like Facebook versus like if you're working at an advertising company or agency. Like it would be worthwhile to understand something about the domain, which would be like the industry, something about what is common in that industry. I think healthcare is another huge example of this where it has its own technology, it has its own language. So what you may care about if you're working at Facebook can be totally different if you're working in healthcare. Uh, but there may be some overlap for certain things like if you wanted to do both, I think it'd be worth learning SQL because everybody uses databases at some point. Um, but maybe you don't need to have a really big difference uh, or understand the difference between platforms and applications and the healthcare space. Maybe it's something else. So I think it's important to not be afraid to look at the technology. And it's not it's also something you shouldn't be doing all by yourself. There's with technology, it's often easier to find online groups to join or find even online tutorials that you can do that will allow you to get that exposure in a lot of times a fun way, but I think it's better to do it in community because what you want is other people to say, hey, this is what's important here. So you should should focus on these things and not like open up a gigantic book and start going through it because that's really probably not going to help you much, but also way deeper than even a lot of technologists go. So it's it's good to have, I think, feel confident in speaking that language and also in knowing what's happening and knowing how whatever it is that you're contributing, what happens to it when it leaves your desk? Like, where does it go next? How does it actually become real in whatever the system or the company is to work at? Following that path so that you can come up with ways that you can actually help or change or or maybe help with uh, new ways of thinking about things because I think you don't want to be constrained by somebody else's idea of what you're capable of. You want to have the ability to have your own ideas in that space and have an an opportunity to execute those. I think that that's a, a huge part of building your career. And it also, I think, is really important for the fact that many jobs you probably will do don't yet exist. So you do want to understand how you are capable of being kind of your own um, accelerator in your career and not necessarily waiting for the right company to understand your value for you. 
Yeah, all great points. I think it also ties into, you know, the brand and storytelling and, and really how we position ourselves. And to that point, mm-hmm. so you have an upcoming event at South by Southwest yeah. um, with Adam where you'll be talking. So you want to maybe say anything about that or other initiatives you have going on to sort of raise awareness of what you're doing? Yes. Um, so South by Southwest is a conference that's held in Austin around March every year. Uh, it used to just be a Texas thing. And then somewhere along the way, a bunch of other people found out about it. So now it's a huge conference. And we're going to be on a panel about anthropology and the meaning economy. And we're going to come up with more specificity of how we're going to discuss it. It's going to be in a block around advertising and branding and marketing. Uh, but I think the coolest part is that we actually got picked, which means there's starting to be some bigger interest in what anthropology has to say. That's always going to be exciting. I really love that it's at a conference that's not an anthropology conference, which I think more, I would love to see more anthropologists going to other conferences and speaking. I know for me, my first conferences were not anthropology conferences. They were conferences for my industry. And South by Southwest is a great conference for the tech industry and music and film. So if they're whatever industry you're working in or even want to work in, I think getting a chance to go to a conference could be huge. Definitely speaking at a conference would be amazing, especially as an anthropologist. I will say I've never gone to a, a conference that was not an anthropology conference and met a person who thought it was, they all think it's cool that you're an anthropologist. They don't always know what you're doing. But they want to know more about why you're there, what you do. I think it's a great way to build your network, which I know we talk about a lot and people are very concerned about. But I think of networking as it's a way of just having acquaintances, people that you wouldn't mind sending an email to because they have seen your face or they've talked to you before. And I think that it's um, really important for anthropologists to kind of break out of their own comfort zones and make sure that they're engaging with the world. Especially now, I feel like there's so many crises happening in so many different ways. And I was just having a conversation the other day with another anthropologist who's going to be on a different panel for SFAA. And he was saying how so many things we think of as like a tech problem or science problem is actually a social problem, which means that there are social scientists who are trained to deal with these problems, but they're often not in these areas like speaking up and, and saying, you know, come talk to me. One of the things I did learn from working with a bunch of engineers and going to a programming bootcamp is that engineers don't have this problem. They think they can solve everything. So they're happy to speak up and tell other people what they can do. And although that can be annoying, it's, it's also something to consider that, it's important to be in spaces where other like-minded folks aren't so that your contributions can be made and also so that you can be a part of solutions. I think that a lot of what will probably happen is new roles, um, new things that a lot of social scientists want to do will emerge because they're a part of the solutions for something. And once you start really integrating in that social science perspective, it becomes quite clear that you need a lot more doing a lot of different things in order to be successful. So it, it's, I feel like it's a really important thing for there to be more of us out there talking and doing things and showing our work and, and being really present so that there is a mental image of what an anthropologist can really do. Yeah, no, completely agree. Uh, um 
And so thanks for all that you are doing. Um, I guess, last thing, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you to learn more, where should they find you? I think the best place is LinkedIn. I, I do try to check it on a regular basis. And it's like the only social media that I can be on without hurting my feelings. So I think LinkedIn. Sounds good. Well, I'll link to that. So Ashford, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.